You are listening to As a Woman, episode 63, Ovulation Induction. In this episode, I'm talking all about the medications that help you ovulate better or at all. I'm talking about Clomid, Letrozole, injectable hormones like FSH and LH, and what your options are. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I want to talk a little bit about ovulation induction or using some of these common medications. I have so many patients who sit in front of me and they say, oh, my friend used Clomid, or what about Famara? And we don't really understand how these work or when these are indicated. And similarly, I see OBGYNs giving these to patients, trying to help them sometimes, but not understanding perhaps that it's not really going to achieve pregnancy. It completely depends on your circumstance. So let's make sure we understand what we're treating and that we're treating it the right way. First of all, let's do a quick refresher on what controls ovulation because understanding the different hormones is essential to understanding the different medications and how we treat and overcome things. Okay, so remember, I like to use the analogy that there's a vault inside your ovary and that's where all your eggs are kept. When you are born, the vault is full. When you go through menopause, whenever that is, the vault is empty. Each egg inside the vault grows inside a follicle. So follicle egg, they're pretty interchangeable. Each month, a group of follicles is released from the vault. The size of the follicle pool, meaning the number of follicles released from the vault, correlates with how many eggs are left inside. So when you have more eggs inside the vault, you have more eggs released per month. And when you have fewer eggs inside the vault, you have fewer eggs released every month. This group of eggs that comes out of the vault, one of them will be selected to ovulate and the rest will die. And the next month, a new group comes out. So what happens? Group of eggs comes out of the vault, each egg in a follicle. The brain sends out follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. Now, FSH is a well-named hormone, and it is one of my favorite because it does what it's called. It stimulates a follicle to grow. It fills up the receptors on one of those follicles, stimulates growth. As the follicle grows, the egg matures inside. And as the egg matures inside, it makes estrogen. This estrogen stimulates growth of the uterine lining. It also communicates to the brain that it's time for ovulation once it's been over a certain level, 200 picograms per milliliter, for at least 50 hours Once the body has seen that much estrogen being made only from a mature follicle, so other things don't cause estrogen levels to be that high, then the brain sends out a surge of a hormone called LH, or luteinizing hormone. The LH surge, this is what you can detect with ovulation kits if you're trying to detect them. So if you're peeing on the ovulation kits, those are trying to detect the LH surge. The LH surge finalizes maturity of the egg inside that follicle, it resumes meiosis, and then it is released and ovulated, captured by the fallopian tube and available for fertilization. The hormone is called LH because 
it stimulates the corpus luteum. After you get that big surge, you continue to have pulses of LH throughout the luteal period. And these pulses of LH stimulate production of progesterone from the corpus luteum. The corpus luteum is the cyst formed after you ovulate. So if you come see me in the office after ovulation and I do an ultrasound, I am going to see a cyst on your ovary. And that is normal. So even though cyst is a four-letter word, all cysts are not bad. These are functional, normal cysts. It is functioning and making progesterone. Now that progesterone is produced in pulses that correspond to the LH pulses that come from the pituitary gland or the brain throughout the entire luteal phase or the second half of the cycle. So this is important one because you do not need to be checking OPKs after you get a positive. The only point of checking them is to confirm you ovulated. Yep, you ovulated. Awesome. Also, the only utility of checking a progesterone level, I hope you're hearing me, the only utility in checking a progesterone level in the mid-luteal phase is to confirm, did you ovulate or did you not ovulate? Your progesterone can range anywhere from 3 to 40 nanograms per milliliter at any moment in the entire luteal phase. So as long as your level is greater than 3, you ovulated. Somebody with a level of 25 did not ovulate better than somebody with a level of 5, okay? It just means we are drawing the blood and checking it at a different interval from the random LH surge in your brain, which we do not know when that occurred. This by no means does not mean that progesterone is not important. Progesterone is important. And defects in progesterone production can occur. That can be called luteal phase defect. Luteal phase defect is when the luteal phase, or the second part of the cycle, when the corpus luteum is working, is not functioning correctly. You may have bleeding, spotting, it may be short. And what we really don't know is, is the brain not sending out a strong enough signal of LH to cause enough progesterone to be made? Or what I actually think is that the corpus luteum is not strong enough to make enough progesterone or last as long as it needs to, likely from poor ovulation. So in this situation, luteal phase defect is a mild version of an ovulation disorder. So an ovulation disorder is when that pathway I just told you about is not functioning for some reason, and medications to help induce ovulation can help overcome those. So the medications we have available to us to help you ovulate, they can include Clomid, Letrozole, which is also known as Femara, injectable hormones such as FSH and LH, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which is not available in the U.S., and then sometimes some ancillary medications like metformin or steroids or losing weight. So we'll just call those other things. Now, the truth is, depending on why you are not ovulating is crucial in order to determine what medication may be right for you. And let's think about how these medications work. So some of the most common medications given to patients for fertility indications are Clomid, also called clomiphene citrate, or Letrozole, also called Femara. These are pills that you take. So if you ever hear of anybody taking fertility pills, this is what they're taking. 
These are pills that you take between day three to seven of your cycle. So again, day number one is the first day of full flow. And after taking these pills for five days, what we're trying to do is induce or improve ovulation. These pills tell the brain to send out more FSH. Crucial here is that the brain and ovary connection must be intact. So if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, you do not ovulate because your brain doesn't send out any FSH, you can take all the Clomid in the world and it's not going to help because the brain can't respond. So Clomid binds to receptors in the brain that normally where estrogen would bind. And so it tricks the brain into thinking that there is no estrogen. Estrogen and FSH have a relationship where the brain interprets if there is estrogen, it sends out less FSH. And if it interprets that there's low estrogen, it sends out more FSH. That's how it knows it's time to grow a new egg for ovulation. So when Clomid comes and fills those brain receptors, suddenly the brain, the pituitary gland, senses there's less estrogen and it sends out a higher dose, a higher surge of FSH. Remember, FSH is follicle-stimulating hormone. So a higher surge of FSH is hopefully enough to drive ovulation. Sometimes if you are already ovulatory, you can use Clomid to improve ovulation. So I specifically really like it for luteal phase defect. So if I'm concerned about your luteal phase based on your clinical symptoms of a short cycle or spotting, I like Clomid to ovulate a better follicle. Now, Clomid can also be used for super ovulation. What this means is if we are purposefully trying to ovulate more than one egg, you can sometimes take Clomid to get this done. Really importantly is that using Clomid in a woman who regularly ovulates but has otherwise unexplained infertility, semen analysis is normal, HSG is normal, so tubes are open, has regular periods and ovulates on her own, using Clomid only improves your chance of pregnancy by 1%. you guys. So it's taking you from 4% to 5% per month. It is generally not worth it unless you are treating an indication like a failure to ovulate regularly or a luteal phase defect, or unless you're combining it with another treatment, such as an IUI. The combination of Clomid plus an intrauterine insemination or an IUI is a treatment for unexplained infertility. Now, unexplained infertility is complex. That is going to be the next podcast episode because it is so frequently requested. But listen to me here. Using Clomid is not a treatment for unexplained infertility. What you are doing is just spending more time waiting until you can get to more aggressive treatment. And it's usually not worth it. There are a few exceptions. Some insurances require that you do it. Sometimes it's the only choice because you can't do an IUI for whatever reason. So I never say never, but you need to understand Clomid is a treatment for ovulation disorders, not ovulating perfectly when used by itself. It's cousin. I like to say that letrozole is a cousin of Clomid. Letrozole is an aromatase inhibitor. What this means is that it eats up estrogen in the periphery. That's the easiest way for me to describe it. So your body's making some estrogen, letrozole eats it up, and so the brain, similar to Clomid, interprets that now you have a low estrogen level and thus sends out a higher surge of FSH. These medications, Clomid and letrozole, very similarly, they're pills, you take them the same time of the cycle. There are very few side effects. Clomid has more than letrozole. 
Common side effects with Clomid can include hot flashes, headaches, and sometimes it can have a negative consequence of thinning the uterine lining. So because it's a SERM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, it actually impacts estrogen receptors all over the body. And one of the places you have estrogen receptors is inside the uterus. If that endometrial lining is now thin, it has the opposite of the intended effect inside the uterus, then Clomid is not a good treatment option for you, and you should be switched to letrozole because that is not something that happens with letrozole. One of the most common reasons women need help ovulating is polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. If you don't know about PCOS, I have an entire podcast on it. But PCOS is when the ovary fails to respond to the brain's normal signal of FSH. I like to think of it as a crowded ovary, lots of small little follicles, all making a tiny bit of estrogen, just enough to confuse the brain. So taking any of these medications, Clomid or Letrozole, can then allow the brain to send out a higher signal of FSH and hopefully induce ovulation. It is not perfect. Some women with PCOS will not respond to Clomid or Letrozole. Clomid has been studied extensively. It's been around for a very long time. Letrozole is a newer medication. However, a study came out that was really well done called the PPCOS or PPCOS, Pregnancy and Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Study. And the PPCOS study looked at giving women Clomid or Letrozole and what was better. And there were higher live birth rates with Letrozole. So it is now the drug of choice for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Again, there may be reasons why you'd give somebody Clomid in a certain situation. But usually if you have PCOS, we are going with letrozole. And if you're in my clinic and I think it's luteal phase defect, I'll usually try Clomid. Those are my top two indications for using those medications for ovulation induction. Now, there are risks, okay? So the risk of twins with Clomid or letrozole is 5 to 8%. The risk of triplets is 1 in 300. Those risks overall are low, but they are not zero. I see patients' eyes glass over me when I say 1 in 300, but let me tell you this. I have two sets of letrozole triplets walking around on the planet Earth. They did great, luckily, but 1 in 300 is not zero. And if you do enough cycles, meaning if I give 300 patients letrozole over the course of my career, I should have a triplet case in there. So it does happen. I warn patients this means that monitoring your cycles is ideal, doing an ultrasound so we can gauge how many follicles you have, and we cancel the cycle if you have too many, if those risks get high. Because if you're ovulating more than three follicles, those numbers are going to be even higher. So we've got to be really mindful when we use these medications. It is common to either track your ovulation with OPKs, ovulation predictor kits, so you can time intercourse, or sometimes, and what I prefer, is to use a trigger shot. A trigger shot is HCG. HCG fills the LH receptor, so you get the same surge, and that will resume meiosis and allow ovulation. I like a trigger shot because I just like to take care of everything in the equation. That way I know when you ovulate, I can tell you when to have intercourse. We don't have any extra variables. So these oral medications are usually the easiest and simplest way to make somebody ovulate. Now, I often don't know what dose to give somebody. So there's different doses. Sometimes we try a dose and it, you over-respond, so then I cancel the cycle and the next month I need to go lower. Sometimes I give you a dose and it's not enough, and I need to up the dose to try to see if I can get you to respond that way. 
There's no book telling us exactly what your body needs. There's a little bit of trial and error. And even some women with PCOS, they can take these oral medications and they are too refractory, meaning I can't get their brain to send out enough FSH to get a follicle to grow. Or sometimes they're just really in between stubborn. I can get eight follicles to grow or I can get zero follicles to grow. There's no safe zone of one to three. Those are cases where sometimes you have to do something else. So if you can't get any follicles to grow with PCOS, so I've maxed out my medications, then I need to go to either injectable hormones or FSH. So for PCOS specifically, I strongly prefer to at this time period go on to IVF. And the reason why is that FSH is an injectable hormone you can give to induce ovulation or in IVF, you can use that injectable FSH for controlled ovarian hyperstimulation. The risk of over-responding is so high that typically it is not worth using those injectable hormones to try to get you to ovulate. The risk of twins is up to 30% and the risk of triplets is up to 3%. These numbers are really high. So much higher rates of cycle cancellation, many more visits, higher risk of multiples, and it costs more money. Those meds are expensive. So standard practice is to see if somebody can respond to oral medications, try to max them out there if you can. If they don't, typically we skip injectable hormones and go straight to IVF because that is the safest and the most cost-effective option at that juncture. Now, that doesn't mean that injectable hormones don't have a place in ovulation induction. They do, but it really depends on what the etiology is. So the only patients where I sometimes try injectable hormones are patients who are hypo-hypo, hypothalamic amenorrhea. Their brain is sending out no hormones, so you have to give them some in order to try to get an egg to grow. Meaning, again, Clomid and Femara won't work because the brain's already not responding. So you can't get a brain to send out a higher signal if it sends out no signal at all. You can give out FSH or LH, and there's a combination drug that's FSH and LH. Women who are truly hypo-hypo need some LH, so I usually give them the combination drug that's called Minipure. Again, hard to titrate, high risk of multiples, but sometimes you can give them baby microdoses and get one egg to grow, and that's really what we're trying to do. I counsel all of my hypo patients that there's a very good chance you're going to need IVF. I want you to be prepared for it. And I also really stress on them the importance of canceling the cycle if we over-respond. There have been a few cases, there have been one case in my career where I converted somebody into an IVF cycle. They over-responded so profoundly that I then decided to go and kind of do IVF to take the eggs out because the risk of multiples was so great. Generally, that's not the preferred option because you're going to get fewer eggs than you would if you are really doing IVF from the beginning where you give higher doses of medications to maximize out the ovary and try to get the highest egg yield that you can. If you're using injectable hormones, you definitely need a trigger shot to force you to ovulate and you also need progesterone to support that corpus luteum. So those are just some things to keep in mind. We're not talking about unexplained infertility here, but a paper did come out called the FAST trial. And what the FAST trial showed us is that the combination of oral plus injectable hormones did not do any better than oral medications alone 
when combined with an IUI for unexplained infertility. So injectable hormones used to be a middle ground step for patients with unexplained infertility, and that is no longer the standard of care. So now injectable hormones are reserved for IVF or for ovulation induction for the hypo-hypo patient. Occasionally, they can be trialed for PCOS, but you have to be very careful about your indication, and they are not a treatment for luteal phase deficiency. There are a few other medications or alternative options to consider, and so one is that if you are overweight, your fat cells can make estrogen, and that can also confuse the pituitary gland. So what you hear very often is that if you lose weight, you can improve your ovulation. And that is true if you are overweight. And the weight loss doesn't have to be very great. Sometimes only 5% of your body weight can restore ovulation. So that's always a good goal to be working towards. Research from the Nurses Health Study showed us that certain foods were more associated with ovulation than others. Even though this isn't hard, fast science, I think it's important to know that diets that were higher in vegetable-based protein sources over animal-based protein sources ovulated more. So go more plant-based doesn't mean you can never have meat again, but substituting some of those meals out can be helpful for you. Other treatments that can be used, one of the most common is metformin. So metformin is a bigonide. It's a diabetes medication, but it's also an insulin-sensitizing agent. Essentially what it does is the intestines do not absorb glucose or sugar as well, and the cells start absorbing it better. So you start processing sugar better. It can induce ovulation in a very small subset of women. So in a classic study, which compared Clomid use, metformin use, Clomid and metformin use, or nothing, women on metformin ovulated more than women on nothing. But by more, I mean 7%. So they had a 7% chance of ovulating over zero. With Clomid, the chance was 22%. And with Clomid and metformin, it was 26%. The difference between 22% and 26% was not statistically significant. So when we talk about studies, what that means is that based on the sample size and the actual difference in those numbers, it's negligible. So Clomid... Clomid plus metformin essentially performed the same. Metformin alone was better than nothing in a very small subset of women. So we commonly use metformin for women who are insulin resistant, meaning PCOS patients. I check a hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of insulin resistance, in patients who do not ovulate well. If it is elevated, even if it's not in the diabetic range, just in that pre-range, I often will treat. Another option for some patients who have very high androgen levels can sometimes be adding steroids on to your ovulation induction medication. It can lower your androgen levels, specifically if you have high DHEAS levels, which is the adrenal version of androgens. And it can sometimes help you ovulate if you have a high androgen level and you're not ovulating in addition to other ovulation agents like Clomid or Letrozole. Now, of worth noting, one option that does not exist in the States is pulsatile GnRH, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone. GnRH comes from the hypothalamus. It actually tells the pituitary gland to release FSH and LH. So it is essential in order to have the pituitary gland respond. So for patients who are hypothalamic, you could, in theory, give them GnRH 
and that would allow the brain to respond and release FSH from the pituitary gland. However, this is a pump. You have to have it for many weeks. This is not really a good option for PCOS. It has a varied response. But with hypohypo, it can mimic the actual function of the brain of the HPO axis. And therefore, you have ovulation rates about 50 to 80%. But again, here in the States, we don't do this. The last thing worth mentioning is that depending on what your problem is, that is going to vary what the treatment is. So one cause of irregular periods is elevated prolactin levels. Prolactin is also made from the pituitary gland. Very good studies have shown the higher your prolactin level is, the more irregular your periods become. You actually will shift from luteal phase defect to skipping months to amenorrhea as your prolactin gets worse. And as you treat it, it will get better. So if your cause of irregular periods is due to high prolactin, then using these medications, which are dopamine agonists, very confusing, but dopamine is released and it controls the secretion of prolactin. So if you take a dopamine agonist, that means there's an increased amount of dopamine released, you will then have a lowering of prolactin released. These medications are called bromocryptine or cabergoline, depending on the receptors they bind, but essentially that is the appropriate treatment and will restore ovulation for patients with high prolactin levels. Similarly, if you have thyroid disease, both hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism can cause irregular periods that can be corrected with appropriate treatment. So taking medications to restore your thyroid to normal can improve your ovulation. And that's because TSH, which is thyroid-stimulating hormone, is made from the pituitary gland. That's where prolactin, FSH, LH come from. And it is in charge of stimulating the thyroid to make thyroid hormones. So if your TSH is off, it is impairing the secretion of the other hormones, specifically FSH. And I talked about losing weight for PCOS or if you are overweight because your fat cells can make estrogen. But similarly, being too underweight or calorically deficient can inhibit the brain from sending out hormones. That is hypohypo or hypothalamic disease. And we need to think about this because it can take a very long time to recover. You will need to eat a dense, well-balanced diet, put on enough body weight for a sustained amount of time before your body may kick into gear, which can take years. And you don't need to be living in that state forever. You need estrogen replacement. So it's crucial to get that diagnosis correctly. But the take-home message here is that you need to know what you are treating. You should not take your sister's Clomid because your periods are irregular. I promise you, reproductive endocrinologists like myself, we love this stuff. We want to figure out why your periods are irregular. We want to be able to fix your problem and give you a dedicated treatment plan. And if somebody is not evaluating the cause of your irregular periods, you need to go somewhere else. That is the take-home message. It is okay to be an advocate for your own health. As always, thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate you being here and your support of this podcast so much. This is actually the very first time the podcast has been released late, and that's because coronavirus is going on, and I needed some time to regroup, spend with my family, and get re-motivated to be able to direct educational content your way. 
upcoming episodes will include unexplained infertility, egg donation, and male factor infertility. Send me some information on any other episodes you want to hear. I think this is a great time while some plans are on hold to dive in and really educate ourselves about our fertility in our bodies as much as possible. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD or the blog NatalieCrawfordMD.com. I have a YouTube channel. Go support it, you guys. That is a labor of love right now, but I'm really enjoying reaching people in video and you can see all my ridiculous faces. And on TikTok, Natalie Crawford MD. And I just love you guys. Please, please, please stay home, wash your hands, be safe. Thank you.